the, this, for those of you who haven't yet read An American Uprising, it's about a mutiny of black GIs in Launceston, just up the road. So it's a, a true story of appalling racial injustice. I'm dying to know if, if you've heard since the book came out from any of the, the black characters involved in it. Has this book reached America, do you know? Do you know what, because of COVID, I'm not sure it's reached everyone who needs to read it. Yeah. I mean, I'm dying to find out from relatives of those who mutinied that night in Cornwall. What I have heard from, so I haven't heard from, right. from any of them in answer to your question. Uh -huh. I have heard from many, many people from Cornwall and Devon about their own memories of what it was like growing up in the war and how they fought for black American servicemen where they could whether they were bus conductresses um, on a bus route in Plymouth and a white American GI tried to evict two black GIs and she said, no, you get off. If you've got a problem, they can stay. You know, so yeah. I've had lots of nice anecdotes, anecdotes about pitched battles, fought with farm implements <laughs> um, and then chucked into the water side mm -hmm. and they were retrieved by a farmer who had to sign the Official Secrets Act. Um, because actually this was going on throughout the country, especially in the southwest, where many of the troops were stationed. Sure. And they wanted to keep a lid on it. They didn't yeah. want anything to threaten Anglo-American relations. So, so this story I think people know about from Lawrence and people of my dad's age, certain generation knew about it. And a lot of people of that age do remember the enmity between the black and white American soldiers. I, I can't wait to hear your extract. Thank you very Stay much. So I'm going to start by reading the prologue and then an extract from the first chapter to give you a sense of what the mutiny was about and the trial that followed. He could feel it turning. Despite the relentless pounding of giant guns that muffled mostly everything, he could sense a change in direction. They had been carving rough circles through unnaturally choppy waters for hours, but now the landing craft was straightening. Finally, it had been commanded to break its holding pattern and head for the beach. Dry-mouthed and pale-faced, First Lieutenant Robert Henney stood in the left-hand side, gripping for dear life the line with which he had been entrusted. Comrades were counting on his six-feet, three-inch frame to conquer the waves so he could establish a safe line for them to cling to while landing. Their mission was to clear mines, allowing armoured vehicles to be grounded. Since before 6am, heavy naval guns had pummeled the shoreline, creating a colossal screen of black smoke. Wave after wave of bombers swept overhead. But still, powerful enemy guns high in the French cliffs retaliated. As the lieutenant's craft now broke out of its arc, the stink of cordite mixed with wet woolen army issue uniforms and vomit. I remember going past the US battleship Texas, and it fired a broadside at the French coast, you could feel that wave and that big black smoke filled with fire, he recalled more than 70 years later. I just wanted to get off the damn boat. When you're just a passenger, your destiny is in someone else's hands. He and fellow soldiers from the 115th Infantry Regiment's 2nd Battalion knew the magnitude of the task ahead. Already the sea was bestrewn with the floating dead from previous assaults. Their sister company, the 116th, had earlier suffered catastrophic casualties. Almost 60% in the first two waves. Young people think they're bulletproof. I can remember being afraid of being maimed. I thought about that a considerable amount. 
and that worried me, but not getting killed. Beneath all the man-made smog and fumes, it was overcast. At around 10am, First Lieutenant Henny was fast approaching one of the most treacherous landing beaches. Ships of varying sizes filled every inch of the ocean. It was June the 6th, 1944, and they were part of the later invasion tide, tasked with tackling Omaha Beach. At the last moment, the beachmaster waved their 10 landing crafts eastwards, away from the unit's original target, the deadly Dog Red Stretch. One look at its watery scrapyard of burning vehicles, munitions and bodies explained why. Now drivers had to navigate ferocious and bloody waters with extreme care. Commanders feared the sight of propellers chopping fallen comrades could shatter the collective nerve to land. Shunted 2,000 yards down the coastline, they prepared to jump out at neighbouring Fox Green instead. Moments before the ramp lowered, Lieutenant Henny thought it had begun to rain, noting the flickering water ahead. But as the rhythmic patter reached his landing craft, it made the persistent rattle of metal on metal, and he realised it was machine gun fire. This was not what they were expecting. The previous week, he was told any opposition would be eliminated by the time they beached. Instead, at the last moment, they realised they would have to land fighting. Now the ramp winched into action, and Henny prepared to jump, weighed down by 70 pounds of equipment on his back and clutching the landing line. This was that generation's moment, and their brave, bold story has been told. Meanwhile, somewhere in the United States, another small band of soldiers, linked forever with this battalion of D-Day troops, was facing something entirely different. They had history with a handful of military policemen now battling their way onto Omaha Beach. The alternative for these stateside servicemen was equally life-changing. They too had been fighting for freedom. Two pathways, two army companies, 3,000 miles apart. They were bound together by one terrible clash which lasted five minutes in a small Cornish town and became an obscure historical footnote. Their two roads diverged after a court-martial the authorities tried to hush up. The trial injected unprecedented Hollywood-style drama to a war-weary Britain, captured world attention briefly before it flickered, moved on and was lost forever in an ever-escalating blitz of world conflict. This is the forgotten story of those forced down that less-travelled road. Their parallel journeys began in a pocket of Great Britain's southwest corner nine months earlier. The 26th of September 1943 was a quietish autumn Sunday. By 10pm, dark curtains were pinned up across the country's windows. Small town cinemas were closed. Even ubiquitous fish and chip stands were shutting. On this cool September evening, a whole company of American soldiers armed itself with rifles, tommy guns and ammunition. Their marching footsteps could be heard stomping long before row upon row of them trooped into a quiet Cornish market square, three abreast. The nighttime air was cool. Pavements were wet from earlier rain, and it was the pitchy ink dark of blackout wartime Europe. Suddenly they appeared in a body from out of the darkness, encircling a group of military policemen, fellow Americans, standing next to a jeep and chatting. A man seemed to be the spokesman for the group, and he said very quietly, why don't you let us come into town? Flashlights snapped on. The military police raised their arms and backed up. As they did, I heard bolts open on a rifle, 
said the Jeep's driver. There was just time for the terrifying realisation that they were armed to sink in when... I heard a crack and a shot landed at our feet. Someone hollered duck. Next, a volley of fire. A flashlight revealed a soldier firing a rifle from his hip and he was really pumping them out. A pause and then chaos as British soldiers, Polish airmen, WAFs and land army girls, as well as the Americans under fire, scrambled for cover. At 9.30am on the 15th of October 1943, the Victorian courtroom in the upstairs of Paynton's police station was full. Usually it was a police court, but for the time being it had been commandeered by the Americans. Their purpose? Court-martial. American soldiers were to, be, were to be tried by an American court, operating under American military law for crimes committed on Shakespeare's Sceptre Isle. It was an extraordinary situation. In case anyone needed reminding, Paynton's new temporary internal backdrop was an enormous Stars and Stripes flag. The furniture in the court was shifted until it resembled an American film court scene. There was no dock, no witness box, no press seats, reported Murray Edwards of the Daily Herald, precursor to the modern-day sun. The final touch was that every single member of the court, bar the defendants, were carrying guns at all times. Despite the US Army's utmost efforts, however, they couldn't quite take the Devon seaside town out of the military court as witnesses sat on a deck chair with Paynton Urban District Council painted on the back. <laughs> Newly rearranged rows at the back of the court were filled with the frames of several US servicemen. Behind them sat two more rows bursting with newsmen representing an A to Z of British and American press. And right at the front, Facing the accused sat Lieutenant Colonel Raymond E. Zickel of the 307th Quartermaster Battalion, law member and president of this U.S. Army court-martial. He presided over a ten-strong panel of U.S. Army majors and captains, including the trial judge advocate and the defense counsel. Immediately in front and beneath the court president and panel sat a talented young English blonde, Miss Joyce Pack, a 21-year-old from Torquay had, even by the war standards, an unusual job. She was one of just six women in the entire British Isles, employed by the US Army as an official reporter for court-martials. Sporting the giveaway flash on her US Army uniform shoulder, as stenographer Miss Pack was the only woman in court. Before initial proceedings were over, and well ahead of the first witness even starting to stand, there were three red flags explaining why this court-martial was attracting so much attention, from the world's free press to its highest echelons of power in London and Washington. Right at the beginning came the first indication. As the accused's name were read out, it became clear that the case involved a shockingly large number of men. It was highly unusual for gangs to stand together, and when legal proceedings opened, it introduced no less than 14 soldiers including significantly two sergeants. All 14 were members of the 581st Ordnance Ammunition Company, stationed in the Norman town of Launceston, once Cornwall's ancient capital. Their sheer number made it truly significant. Paynton Police Court was borrowed from the British authorities. It was the only place big enough to hold all the people in the case, reported the Herald. Next, as a catalogue of charges was read out, came the second explanation for the court's heaving press benches. The allegations were not only many, 
but serious. This was no ordinary criminal case, but mutiny with murderous intent. Each man spoke only to plead not guilty. For two-thirds of them, it would be the only time in the entire three-day court-martial that their voices would be heard out loud. After a five-minute recess, the President got to the nub of the case. It was the final and most significant signal that something extraordinary was about to unfold, that the crux of this was different. No report may disclose the location of any unit and any publication must clear through the Board of Censors, he started. American military authorities were obviously trying to keep a tight lid on this. Quickly, President Zickel moved to the heart of the matter and to why this was a case with potential to cause controversy on a seismic scale. Turning to the court, President Zickel made an exceptional demand. No reference will be made to race or colour of the accused or any parties who are witnesses of the proceedings. The President, confident he had thus quickly nipped any trouble in the bud, looked around to the waiting press non-expectantly, asking, is there any questions? But that cat was long out of the bag. Race was at the heart of this, and too many people knew about it. The President had asked the impossible, and the British press was not about to let him get away with it. That instant, one of the press representatives stood and said, yes, sir, it has already been announced in the newspapers that the accused are coloured, read the court transcript. The President said, there will be no further announcement. His concession was critical. For the first time, details of this case could be reported in the United States of America, home to the accused, who happened to be African-American servicemen. Their race was at the heart of the controversy, and to be able to write about it was a breakthrough. For weeks, American newsmen had tried to file their copy. Banned from publishing details in the United States, this press challenge and victory in the courtroom meant news long out in Britain would get across the pond, albeit under the BDI of the Board of Censors, and at a great personal and professional cost to those whose bylines did make it into print. Effectively, the British press had forced the hand of President Zickel, setting the stage for a trial that would enthrall the nation, publicly expose the climate of racial intolerance spread by US soldiers, and a surprising British reaction to it. Moments after, the trial judge advocate stood up. He was ready to start by calling his first witness. The game was on.